I am so thankful for Mark and Jessica and their ministry of music. But I know they would be the first to tell you that uh, the time when we weren't able to gather wasn't nearly as sweet as it is being able to come in here and hear everybody sing together. This is great. I love it. I want to start off a little bit differently this morning. I want to start off with a pop quiz. And before you guys get up and run out and and leave and get all worried, just hang with me for a minute. I want to start out with the little language quiz. Stuff you guys have heard before, stuff we've gone over. But I want to ask you, first question on pop quiz, what is the Hebrew word for hearing, for listening carefully, for discerning? Shema. Good job. 100% so far. Shema. Second question. It's the last question. What is the Hebrew word that we learned for keeping, for diligently guarding, um, for keeping watch over? Shamar. All right. Good job. 50% on that one. Not quite as loud. But Shema and Shamar are both words that are all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, talking about listening and paying attention to diligently take in and to obey what the Lord has given to the Israelites. Shamar, this word to to keep, to protect, to take ownership of. Um, Also, all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, very important um, key theme in the book. This morning, I want to talk about a third Hebrew word. We're going to be Hebrew experts by the time we are through the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to know three words. But this third word that I want to introduce us to um, is similar to the first two in that it, it kind of sounds similar. So Shema and Shamar, that's, that's easy, right? Just add an, end on the, an R on the end. Um, fairly simple. This third word kind of rhymes with Shamar. It's Zakar. Zakar is a third word that I want to introduce you to. And this word means to remember, to recall, to, to call to mind, to bring up um, something that's happened in the past. And this too is a, a major theme all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Hopefully, you guys will remember that a basic outline for Deuteronomy, a basic way to remember how it's structured, is just to think of three sermons and a funeral. Three sermons and a funeral. So Moses, in his writing, he has three main messages that he presents throughout the book of Deuteronomy. The first four chapters, chapters one through four, he focuses on what God has done for Israel in the past, looking at the Exodus generation, how God brought them up out of Egypt, how God has um, rescued them and delivered them, and then how he charged them with certain instructions. It's focusing on what God has done in the past. This idea of zakar to, to remember what God has done in the past is central to this first message of, of Moses's. The second message is really the the meat of Deuteronomy, the, the biggest chunk of Deuteronomy in chapters 5 through 26. That's where we've been for the majority of our time. And this section, this message, focuses on what God expects from Israel, what he expects from this promised land generation, the children of the parents who came out of Egypt, the expectations that God has for his people. And the third message we're going to be dipping into this morning. It starts in Well, really towards the end of chapter 6, but chapter 27 through 32 focuses on the third message or the third sermon that Moses brings to to us through the book of Deuteronomy. And then his death, burial, and the legacy of Moses can be read in chapters 32 through 34. 
So before we jump into this third message of, of Moses and look at chapters 27 and 28, that's where we're going to be this morning, looking at blessings and curses that God has for his people, for his chosen people, Israel. I want to go back and I want to look at the last four verses of chapter 26 as Moses is transitioning into this message. And then we'll open up in a word of prayer. So Deuteronomy 26, verses 16 through 19. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do. That's one of our words. That's shamar. To be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. That word all is going to be vitally important to our text today. So keep your ears perked up for that word all. Verse 17. You have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in his ways and keep Shamar, his statutes, his commandments, and his ordinances, and listen, that's our other word, Shema, to his voice. The Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments, and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. Let's pray. God, we thank you once again for your word, for the truth of your word, that it is absolute, that you have delivered it and preserved it for us, that you have carried along holy men by your Holy Spirit, and you have spoken to us, that it's God-breathed. God, we thank you for it's truth. The fact that all scripture is God-breathed, not just the New Testament, not just the Psalms, but even your law. God, help us to be like, like David. Help us to be like Jeremiah, to long after your word, to seek to devour your word, to know it, even your law. God, help us to treasure it. Help us to realize the, the truth of the application that applies for, for us today as New Testament saints in Christ. God, help us to focus this morning. I pray that you would give us understanding and insight. God, hide me behind your glorious cross. God, I thank you again for who you are. I pray that you would guide us as we open up your holy word. Amen. We have a large section of scripture that we're going to seek to cover today, 94 verses. And so that's quite a bit. We're not going to read all of them, but we're shooting for about 80%. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Chapter 27 and verse 1 really starts off with Moses going and he's gathering the elders together. So 27 verse 1 says, Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people. So it's not just Moses by himself. He's got the elders who are gathered together with him. Glance down in your Bibles to verse 9. You'll see the same concept that Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all of Israel. And so you'll remember for the past, past 40 years, Moses, he's been the man, right? He's been the one who's been doing everything. He's the one who, who got into Pharaoh's face and said, hey, you need to let my people go. He threw down his rod, turned into a snake, right? He's the one who turned the water into blood. He's the one who uh, brought the, the curse that killed Pharaoh's son. He split the sea. He's the one who spoke with God on the mountain, delivered the law to the Israelites. He's the one who would speak to God on behalf of the Israelites. So whenever God was to commune with his people Israel, it would come through the mouth of Moses. Moses was it, right? He was a guy that, 
everything would go through. But we're coming up close to his death. And so here we see that he's got the elders gathered around him. He's got the Levitical priests gathered around him. And so it's not just Moses who's addressing the people, but he has the future leaders of Israel, in part, who are with him addressing these people. And it isn't just Moses and the elders or the the Levitical priests of Israel who have an eye to the future, but in this section, they are calling the people of Israel themselves to also have an eye to the future as they look back to the past and zakar or remember the things that God has done. And so in this first section of 27, we see a call to remembrance and the importance of remembering and passing that down through future generations. So let's go ahead and let's read the first several verses of chapter 27. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people saying, keep all the commandments which I commanded you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal. These stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God. You shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. So, that's encouraging, right? That's good. This call to remember. Let me direct you to to look at verse 2 and verse 4. And in both those verses, a very important word is used. It says, so it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan. Isn't that encouraging? That God is a faithful God, a God of promises, and he says that when you cross the Jordan, just reminding them, I've already promised to Abraham hundreds of years ago, this is going to happen. You are going to cross into this land that I have promised you, this land flowing with milk and honey. When you cross into the Jordan, uh, he is a God who is faithful to his promises. And we see that twice here, just in this opening section, uh, a reminder of the certainty that our God speaks with. And he says in verse 2, it shall be that when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you. Again, reminding them, this isn't something that you've earned. This isn't something that you deserve. This has been given to you by God, by this faithful God who has promised this to you. He has come in. He has delivered this land unto you as a blessing, as a gift. It is the God of Israel who has given these things to you. And then he goes on. He talks about setting up these stones and taking these rocks. And he says, you're to coat them with lime. So that might sound a little bit different to us. Pretty much you're supposed to, to whitewash them, to put this, this lime over them so that when they write on them, the words will be more clear. The words will bounce and they'll be able to, to read them more clearly. It will last longer. He says, take these stones, put lime on them and write on them so that you can remember. You are to set up for yourselves a reminder so that you don't forget that it is God who has promised this land to you, so that you don't forget that it is God who has brought you in to this land. 
It is he who has brought you here, and he is the one who is commanding you these things, these promises that you are to remember, to keep all the commandments which I command you today. That's what they were to take and to write on these stones so that they would remember, so that they wouldn't forget where they came from and who their God was. In verses 5 and 6, we read that they are to set up an altar to God in this land which God has promised them. And it's not to be any fancy, ornate altar. Um, in fact, it, it may even be a, a temporary altar. They're not supposed to use any tools, any iron tools on it. Just set up some rocks, and there you are to remember who God is. You are to come together corporately. Verse 7 says, You shall sacrifice peace offerings, and you shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. So they are all to come together corporately. They are to sacrifice to God. They are to remember who God is. They are to eat together to, to fellowship and to sing praises to God. This is before the church was established by Christ, but they're to come together and they're to have church together to realize and remember what God has done for them, to fellowship, to be happy, to sing his praises, to eat together. They're called to come here and, and remember how good and how faithful and how loving and generous their God has been. And this, like the, the feast that we looked at last week back in chapter 26, is to be a one-time ceremony. This isn't something that they're to do year after year, like the, the Feast of Tabernacle or like the Passover. Um, this was a one-time thing, recognizing we are here, we are in this land today because God has brought us here, because God is faithful. In verse 8, once again, for the third time in this section, we see this mention of these stones you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. So they're to take and, and put down and to preserve God's word on these stones so that the future generations can know that God is the one who has given them this land. God is the one who has given them these commands that they are to remember, that they are to keep, that they are to obey, that they are to shema. God is the one who has given these to them, and they need to remember that. They've been told countless times, I'm sure, by Moses that you need to impart this knowledge to others. You need to remind people of this. And I'm sure that by this time, they're just like, okay, Moses, we get it. We're supposed to keep your commands. We're supposed to relay that to our children, to our grandchildren. But from our perspective, from our point of view, our point in history, we can look back and we can see they failed, didn't they? They didn't follow through. They weren't obedient in taking these laws and taking these commands and passing them on to their children. There were times when maybe for a generation or two, they would be faithful. They would be God honoring. They would do the things that they were supposed to do. They would keep and obey these commandments. But those times were short lived. It wasn't long before their sons and their grandsons were getting into trouble. They were running after other gods. They were perverting the, the gospel, the justice that God had set before them. They were being disobedient and not keeping these commands as they've been told over and over and over again. Remember back in chapter 6 in the great Shema passage, verses 6 through 9 says, These words which I am commanding you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so here, they're told, on this day, the first thing you were to do, the day that you enter the land that God has given you, you were to take and you were to write on these stones. And you were to set them up as a reminder. Again, 
They're being told over and over and over again. But this is to be a reminder for them so they can look at that and they can look back and they can remember. So similar to how we as a church have our, our ordinances that are set up to remind us of who Christ is and what he has done. When we come together and we remember the Lord's table, and we take of the bread, and we take of the cup. We are to recall, we are to remember, we are to zakar what Christ did for us and how he paid for our price and how his blood was spilt. When we come together and we see somebody who is baptized in water, that is a reminder of the fact that Christ himself was killed and he rose again. He has called us to identify with him in that act of baptism. And here, these rocks are to be set up as a reminder for future generations. And I think this is a great place for us to, to meditate and to step back and to realize that we shouldn't be like the Israelites and to overlook all these commands to pass on to our children the truth that God has given to us, the truth that God has preserved for us. Let us remember our children, the children that we just prayed for, that they would grow up in a, a godly way, that they would have a, a godly perspective on this crooked and perverse world that we live in. Let's not live in such isolated Christian lives if we don't take into account the, the responsibility that we as parents, as grandparents, as older spiritual authorities in others' lives to pass on that truth to a younger generation. Let us not be like the Israelites in that regard. Let's go on to verses 9 and 10. These are key verses in this chapter. Again, as Moses begins to introduce this idea of blessings and curses. Deuteronomy 27, verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey Shema the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. This, again, is central to the next two key chapters as God is covenanting with his people. This is, once again, God reestablishing this covenant that he has with his chosen people, Israel. Covenant isn't a word that, that we use too often. It's not a word that I think we fully understand, even after studying this idea of covenant for 26 chapters now. I think the closest that we can get in our current day to understanding this idea of covenant is when a man will stand up and he will covenant to a woman and he will say, I commit, I promise, I pledge to love you. I pledge to care for you. I pledge to honor you. And I pledge to do this in sickness, in health, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And then the woman will turn around and she will do the same and she will pledge to the man. She will covenant with the man. And as we talked about just a few weeks ago, our society doesn't have a, a firm understanding of this covenant relationship. It's something that has been diminished in our minds, and divorce is something that is all too prevalent these days, because this idea of covenant is, is lost on us. We don't have a, a biblical understanding of this covenant, and our view of covenant and the weightiness that's described in a biblical covenant is something that we have to really strive to understand, to overcome this barrier if we want to have a right understanding of what's going on here in these verses, that God is covenanting with his people, Israel. Read with me verses 11 through 14. 
Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When, again, that, that beautiful word, when you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. Remember, they're standing there to bless on Mount Gerizim. Verse 13, for the curse, you shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice. We'll stop right there. Suspenseful, right? Um, R.C. Sproul, brilliant man, he says that he can't figure out any reason why these tribes would be split up in this certain way. I struggled with that for a minute. Well, why these tribes on this mountain? Why these tribes on that mountain? He says, it doesn't really matter. Nobody knows. But the mountains seem to have some significance. So the mountain that the six tribes went to, so they're split in half, right? So 12 tribes in total. Six went to one mountain. Six went to another. The six tribes that went to Mount Gerizim, uh, this mountain was the mountain that they were to bless from. And this mountain was really beautiful. It was full. It was lush. Uh, full of trees, fruit. Um, it was a, a great green mountain. Not unlike what I would think of uh, a Mount Nebo or Mount Lofer over to, to our east. These are nice, green, lush mountains, right? But the other tribe who went over to Mount Ebal, this was not such a beautiful mountain. This was a, a rocky, barren, just nothing kind of mountain. And when I think of that, I think of West Mountain, right? Over where Joseph lives. That's, that's Mount Ebal. Especially last year when it was burnt with fire, just black and tarred, um, not lush, not full of life, completely different. And this is where the cursings were to be proclaimed from. And so you have these two sets of tribes standing on these two different mountains, and the priests were going to call out to them, and they were to respond. We're getting ready to read that, verses 15 through the end of the chapter, that they would respond and say, Amen, amen, I agree, let it be, Amen. And we'll see that they, they sort of correspond with the mountains that they're being preached from. But it's really interactive. It's really a, a liturgical practice. And we don't, in this church, practice a lot of liturgy. Other churches, they'll have the, the pastor or the overseer stand up, and they'll often read from a, a book of prayer or a liturgical book, and then the congregation will respond. Um, kind of like we did with our little quiz this morning, right? I asked a question, you guys responded with an answer. Uh, we'll do this sometimes when we have a, a new member or uh, a baby dedication to get this response, this interaction from the congregation to say, yes, I agree with that. I want to be a part of this. I want to come forward and I want to say that I'm going to help uphold this commitment that we're going to make together as a church, as a congregation. Um, at the end of the services, we do this in our congregational reading of Scripture and I'll be the first to tell you that's kind of weird sometimes. It can be a little bit awkward, right? When you're standing up and maybe not everybody has the same cadence going on as they're reading the scripture. And maybe the person next to you isn't reading and you're not sure if you're supposed to be reading right now or, or what it is. So it, it can be awkward sometimes, but there's a purpose behind it. Um, we see that it, it really brings involvement. It engages everybody in this, um, in this thing that we're doing, in this liturgical practice. But here, what we're going to be looking at, verses 15 and following, is a divinely inspired liturgy. It's divinely scripted. God is the one who is outlining the conditions of the covenant. He's telling these people what they should say, how they should respond, and they are taking part in this. Um, these, 
verses are going to cover 12 different sins that God is talking about. But they are not an exhaustive list. We have to realize that. Rather, they are examples of some sins that, that represent um, other sins and may easily be glanced over or escape apparent detection. It might not be something that is automatically seen as a sin. So he's reminding them, hey, these are sins. Do this. You will be cursed. And in this section, we don't see any blessings. We'll get some of that into chapter 28. But let's go ahead and let's read verses 15 through 19 of 27. Again, as the Levites answer, and the men of Israel respond with a loud voice, 15 says, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who makes his neighbor's boundary mark, who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Isn't it interesting in verse 15 that the first sin that's mentioned and associated with a curse is a sin of idolatry. And this sin of idolatry is a sin that the Lord absolutely hates. He detests idolatry. He is a God who isn't going to share his glory with anybody else. He is a God who alone is God. And he reminds us of that all throughout scripture. And so for somebody else to ascribe praise, to ascribe honor or glory to another God, to a, a false piece of wood, a statue, is absolutely detestable to the Lord. He calls both idols and idol worshipers in his holy word an abomination to his name. God hates idolatry. And it's this sin of idolatry that really is, is the downfall of Israel. And it leads them into a number of other sins. It opens up the door to numerous sins that Israel walks into down in the future. And scripture identifies this not just here, but remember back in the Ten Commandments, this is the second of the Ten Commandments, that you shall not make a, a graven image and, and worship that graven image, either as God or as another God. And we see this even in the, the following sins that are mentioned. In verse 16, this is uh, a reminder of the fifth commandment, to honor your father, father and mother. And then all the people responded and said, Amen. Verse 17, Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. And this is recalling the, the eighth commandment, that you shall not steal. To remove your neighbor's boundary mark is to increase your own property line and to steal from your neighbor. And it's, it's grievous and it's labeled here as sinful. Really, it ties back into the commandment before it because in this culture, in this day, it was God's design that uh, inheritance and land be passed down from generation to generation. So in stealing somebody's property, you're not only stealing, but you're dishonoring father and mother. And then in verse 18, it says, Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. That is hearkening back to the, the ninth commandment, that you shall not lie, you shall not bear false testimony. But not only that, this is... 
uh, mimicking Leviticus 19.14, which speaks of how we should honor and how we should treat those who are disabled. That verse says that you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. Isn't there beautiful wisdom in that? That, that God's law is, is good and true and perfect. It's easy to see. I mean, in our own fleshly sinful nature, how, how is that? I mean, it's just so, so common for us to, to approach somebody and say, oh, how can I take advantage of this person who is less fortunate? How can I gain from somebody else? But God, being all-knowing, being all-wise, says, nope, you're not going to take advantage of the disabled person. You're not going to mislead the blind person or, or speak ill of, of the deaf person. You are to care for those who are disabled. And these first four uh, sins that are mentioned here, like the others that are going to be mentioned, are not mentioned here for the first time, but they're a, a reiteration of what we have all throughout the law. So these have been told and, and laid out before these Israelites before. This isn't the first time that they're hearing them, but they're now hearing them a little bit more weighty than they had before. They're hearing them as they're being attached to curses that they are singing along with, saying amen to. Verses 20 through 23 address four specific examples of sexual sin, and they really demonstrate the Lord's design in marriage and how he is the one who gets to define biblically what marriage is. Verses 20 through 23. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt and all the people shall say amen. Cursed is he who lies with an animal and all the people shall say amen. Cursed is he who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or his mother and all the people shall say amen. Cursed is he who lies with his father, with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. So again, this is highlighting the seriousness with which God takes the, the marriage bed and the, the establishment of marriage, of biblical marriage. And as God's church, as his representatives here on earth, we also must recognize marriage as something that God alone is allowed to define. Even when our government comes and says that two men can, can gather in marriage or two women can get together and they can be called married. That's not what God says. That's not how God defines it. Even when our state says that bigamy is, is okay and that, that is a lawfully recognized marriage, we have to stand up. We have to oppose them standing on the truth of God's word and say that is not how God defines marriage. And we can point back to the truth of his word. We can point back to the truth of his law. God is the one and the only one who has the right, who has the authority to define marriage. Verses 24 and 25. Curse is the one who strikes his neighbor in secret and all the people shall say amen. Curse is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person and all the people shall say amen. These, per, these curses fall on the person who secretly kills another, on the person who hires or is hired for murder, and regardless of whether or not they're caught, this curse is ascribed to them. This curse falls on them. God knows all things. He is not a God who's going to be uh, hidden from. He's not a God that we can trick or, or lie to in some way. This curse is going to fall even on those who commit murder in secret, even on those who try to look for a loophole, and maybe they can pull the, the wool over man's eyes, but not over the eyes of the Lord. Verse 26, 
kind of sums it all up and reminds these people, you need to listen to these things. You need to do these things. Actually put your, your foot to the plow and uh, follow through with what you've committed to. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. And this verse is quoted by Paul in the New Testament, Galatians 3.10, where it says, For as many as who are under the works of the law are, of, are under a curse. For it is written, Curses everyone who does not abide in everything written in the book of the law to do them. We have to, if we're going to live under the law, we have to live under the whole law. And here, all throughout this, he says, you need, to, you need to submit to this. You guys have called out. You said, amen. You guys, by your own word, by your own testimony, have heard this. You guys understand. You guys can't say that um, there's any ambiguity in what God has preached to you. There's no lack of clarity in what you've understood from the Lord. This is his law, and he will bring it to pass. They heard these things, again, long before now, but now there's a, a penalty that's being attached to it. There's a weightiness that's being attached with these laws that God has placed before them. When the Lord speaks something, he means it. It's going to come to pass. His word will hold fast. It's not a suggestion. It's not a request. This is a command. And he says, you must follow it. Deuteronomy, 20, or Deuteronomy 7, rather, verse 9 through 11 says, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. But he repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments, which I am commanding you today to do them. If we look back in verse 10, one of those vital verses that we looked at that said, you shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes. This same theme, this same central verse is going to carry on into chapter 28. That's how the, the first verse in chapter 28 starts off. It says, now it shall be if you diligently obey. Again, there's our, our word, Shema, to diligently obey, to listen and put into practice the Lord your God being careful to do, shamar, all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. That word, if there, is important, isn't it? It reminds us that this is a, a conditional promise that the Lord is setting before them. This whole if-then structure. Hey, if you do this, you will be blessed. If you do this, you will be cursed. And we'll continue to see that throughout this chapter in Deuteronomy. That this covenant is a conditional covenant. It's not a, a contract. It's not a formula. And God isn't indebted to these people in any way. But rather, it's a covenant between two parties, God and Israel. A covenant that he is has outlined a covenant that he will see through, not out of obligation, but out of his faithful character. He has said that he will do it, and he will do it. And we can't twist his arm and say, this needs to be done. Furthermore, this isn't even for us in the first place, right? This is for Israel. And if we misunderstand and misapply this chapter, as some have done, then we can be at, led down an, an 
errant road with an errant theology, and we can end up in some kind of prosperity gospel type situation where we say, oh, well, I did this, and therefore God is obligated to bless me. That is not the way that we should be approaching this chapter. Uh, just need to throw that out there ahead of time because that has been done far too often. So in this chapter, we're going to be bouncing around quite a bit. So if you're following along in your Bibles, I hope you can keep up and do well. Um, and if you're here, if you're online, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know if you'll be able to keep up. Maybe you will, because Joseph is really good at what he does. But we're going to be bouncing around a little bit because the structure of this chapter um, really goes through the blessings first and then the curses later. But we're going to be looking at four different sections of this. The first that we're going to look at is the blessings. And then the curses really correspond pretty much word for word with the blessings, just in a negated fashion. And then a third section will go on and it will further develop the curse in a way that isn't mentioned in the blessing section. And God will add to and even heighten the effects of the curse that are mentioned here in this chapter. So we're going to be looking at four different main categories of themes of Israel's livelihood in in this chapter. We're going to be looking at the prosperity in the land. We're going to be looking at their prosperity among their enemies, at their descendants. And then lastly, we're going to be looking at their witness to and position among the nations. Uh, We're going to fly through this fairly quickly, just read a lot of verses, but that's where we're going. So hopefully we can kind of keep up. All right, the first two verses um, really outline where he's going, saying, all these blessings will come upon you if you obey the Lord your God. The first section we want to look at is their prosperity in the land. We'll see that in verses 3 through 6. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Now, this is a big deal. We might not realize it because of where we are contextually, but these guys were living back in, back in the day, right? Before they had a Walmart, they could just go down, they could get their food that they needed. Before they could um, take advantage of the, the current blessings that we know, the refrigerator, of an oven, of all these things that really we kind of take for granted and they're essential to our way of life, to, to eating and to being sustained and to living. Um, these are important things. And for them being an agricultural society, this would really amount to security, to being able to, to bank on the fact that God is going to care for them, that he is going to bless them um, in their city and in their country, regardless of the, the populace or the area that they live in. God will bless them, again, going back, if they're diligent to obey the Lord, to shamar the Lord, to keep, to shamar his commands. When you come in and when you go out, you shall be blessed. When you're here, when you're there, um, it's really all-encompassing. God will bless them if they obey. Jump with me down to verse 15. Verse 15 is where the curses are introduced. We really only have... 14 verses, and if you narrow that down, it's probably only 10 verses that are devoted to this idea of being blessed. The rest of the chapter is focused on the cursing, and that really starts here in verse 15, which says, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God 
to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Now listen to how closely this pairs and, and matches with the blessings that we just read. Verse 16. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. It's pretty much word for word the same, only negated in a a curse-like fashion. And then he takes it one step further. Verse 20 says, The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Now that's important. Catch that. He says, On account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And so what God is doing here, He's equating the, their evil deeds with forsaking Him. When they go out and they are disobedient, they are forsaking God. They're forsaking their Lord. It's a a personal thing. And he, being a good God, being a just and a jealous God, is going to remember that. He's not going to put up with that. He's going to curse those people for their disobedience. That is good. That is right. That is just. Verse 21, the Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever, and with inflammation, and with fiery heat, and with the sword, and with blight, and with mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over you shall be bronze. It's going to be hot. It's not going to yield any water. The earth under will be iron. It's going to be hard. It's not going to yield any vegetation. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust from heaven. It shall come down on you until you are destroyed. It sounds pretty, pretty terrible, doesn't it? Again, we see God doesn't only apply the blessing in a negative fashion. He takes it one step further. He says, if you disobey me, you're going to pay the price. Again, this should remind us of his goodness, of his holiness, that he is a God who is going to require his hand what he says. The second category of potential blessing and cursing is that of prosperity among their enemies. So if you're following along your Bible, we're going to jump back a little bit. We're going to look at verses 7 and 8, the prosperity among their enemies. Verse 7, the Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way, and they will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord gives you. Again, this amounts to peace and security, to, being, uh, to living in a land peacefully in a time of, of great war and great conquest, something that you and I don't know. But they would be able to live there peacefully. Their enemies would scatter seven ways when they go out to, to battle against them. Verse 8, it says that it's the Lord who will command the blessing upon you. Once again, it, it goes back to God being the one who is a provider of all things. He's the one who brought them into the land. He's the one who's going to provide the blessing. And even the curse is going to be provided by the Lord himself. Look with me at the, the negative part of this, the, the curse that is associated with this in verse 25. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Again, if you do not keep these commandments. 
you will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcass will be food to all the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. Then he takes it one step further. Verse 27. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the the itch from which you cannot be healed. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Even when you got an itch like on your foot, it just doesn't go away. But to have an itch from the Lord that can't be healed. Man. Verse 28. The Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. And you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness. And you will not prosper in your ways. But you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with no one to save you. Man, don't you think if you were the Israelites, you would want to obey? That you would be listening and this would get your attention and make you think, well, I don't want that. I think I'm going to obey. Third category of blessing and cursing is prosperity for their descendants. Going back to verse 11 and 12. Prosperity for their descendants. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your beasts, and in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your, la- your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. <laughs> Doesn't sound like America today, does it? to lend and not borrow. And I think that's going to end up being a curse for our children, for our grandchildren. Again, going back to the fact that it's our our children or grandchildren who inherit what we pass along to them. Look with me at the curse. Verse 30 through 32. You shall betroth a wife, but another man will violate her. You shall build a house, but you will not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. Remember, I think it's back in chapter 7 that God said, you're going to enter into a land that you didn't build. You're going to live in houses that you didn't build. You're going to drink from cisterns that you didn't build. You're going to eat from, from fields that you didn't plant. And now he's saying, if you disobey, the opposite is going to be true of you. Verse 31, your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you will not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you. you will not be, it will not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, and you will have none to save you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, and there will be nothing you can do. They're going to have their kids ripped away from them if they disobey. What a motivator. Verse 41. You shall have sons and daughters, but they will not be yours, for they will go into captivity. And then where God steps it up, a notch further. Verses 34 and 35. You shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see. The Lord will strike on the knees and legs with sore boils from which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. That sounds terrible. Not like anything any one of us would want to undertake and go through. The fourth and final category of blessing and cursing we'll look at is Israel's witness to and position amongst the nations. Remember, this is God's people, and he is a jealous God, and he cares about his name. He cares about his glory. Going all the way back to to verse 9. 
the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if, that important word, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Once again, they're his covenant people. They are his representatives. And it's their disobedience that threatens to tarnish his holy name. Verse 10. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you on account of God. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you only will be above, and you will not be underneath if you listen to the commands of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully. And do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Again, God is very serious about the sin of idolatry. He is a jealous God. Verse 36. Let's look at the the curse. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. Remember before, they would be the ones who would be instilling fear in these other nations. Now they're a horror and they're a taunt to these other nations if they disobey. Verse 43 and 44. The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you will go down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He shall be the head and you the tail. And then three more verses where God heightens this curse even more. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourself with the oil, for, the, for your olives will drop off. And then kind of a, a summary passage in verses 45 and 46, summing up all these blessings and all these cursings, the different ways that, that God has promised to bless them if they obey and curse them if they disobey. Verse 45 says, So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Why? Because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. They shall become a sign and a wonder on you and on your descendants forever. And then he goes on in verses 47 and following. And he talks about how the Lord is going to bring a nation up against them. It's going to rise up against them. It's going to tear down their fortified walls and infiltrate their cities and ravage and oppress them to the point that they are eating their own children because they have nothing to eat because they are so, so destitute. And the, it talks of the, the respectable man and the honorable woman and how they will take and they will greedily eat their children, their young, without sharing with anybody else. In secret, they will devour their little ones. Isn't that a wicked thought? And that is the point that they're driven to because they disobey, because of this curse of the Lord, because they were disobedient, because of sin that entered the world through Adam. 
that God will bring them upon them all the plagues and all the distresses of Egypt, that he will scatter them among the nations, again, where they will serve false gods and false idols. And they will have a total lack of peace, a total lack of security and, and trust and dependence. And it says that they will long for the evening when it's morning. And when it's morning, or when it's evening, they will pray that it would be morning because they're just so discontent. There is such a lack of peace, such a lack of security that they will long for, for something to change, just for something different. And we see throughout this chapter that we just rush through in a hurry, that God has given Israel every reason to obey. He's given them every external motivation to be obedient, to submit to his word, but they were unable to do so. It was impossible for them to, to do. It could not be done. Wednesday, in our, our Bible study, we looked at Acts 13. And I want to read a, a couple of verses from Acts 13. Acts 13, 38 and 39. It says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from through the law of Moses. The law of Moses was never meant to, to offer salvation. Obedience to this law could not bring about salvation, could not bring about what it is that, that God has for us, but instead it was designed to make us conscious of sins. It was designed to, to close every mouth and hold every heart accountable to God. That is the purpose of the law, so that we will realize we can't keep it. That is the, the reason for our need for a new covenant. Read with me in, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. This is speaking of the new covenant. It says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is a, a concept that we're going to look at next week in Deuteronomy chapter 29, that God is going to give them a, a new heart, a new eyes to see with, because they have that need. And they are not there yet. Israel is not under this, this new covenant with God. It hasn't happened yet. But while it hasn't happened for Israel as a whole, for Israel as a nation, we as a church can participate in this new covenant. We as a church get to, to reap the blessings of this new covenant in Christ. It was ratified by his blood that he shed once for all. And just as the, the conditional blessings and curses if of Deuteronomy are merit-based, so are our blessings and curses in Christ. And hopefully, that caused your ears to, to perk up a little bit and to wonder, what do you mean our, our blessings and our curses are merit-based in Christ? Well, let me explain. In, in Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he was expounding the law and talking about the extent and, and the limitations of law and how far the law Win the implications that it had. And in verse 20, he said that, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way inherit the kingdom of God. That's, 
That's quite a statement for our righteousness to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious elite. But he takes it a step further at the end of the chapter in verse 48. And he says that you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now we know that there is no, no goodness in man. That we are all sinful. We all fall short of God's glory. And Jesus is showing us in chapter 5 that the law goes beyond just our outward obedience. But it penetrates down to the heart. And we all have a wicked heart. A heart that needs to be taken out. A heart of stone that needs to be made into a heart of flesh. Again, a picture that is the scene in the new covenant. And Jesus, because he knows that we are incapable of being obedient, we, are, we don't have righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. We don't have a, a perfectness like the Father. He took that upon himself. And in verse 17 of that same chapter, it says that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus is our perfect righteousness. Jesus is the one who offers us the blessings of of his word that Jesus perfectly kept the law that he himself wrote and offered this this active obedience on his part so that he could give us his righteousness and in return he could take our sins our our curses that we earn on our merit he didn't go to the cross on his own merit he went to the cross because of what we merit what we earn in our disobedience and our rebellion in our sin and it was on the tree that he paid for those curses. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus was cursed for us, not for his own sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And because of that, he is able to stand up and he is able to say that he has paid the price. That he has justified us from our sin. He has made us right before God. He has bore his own just wrath that we deserve. And our sin has been paid in full if we know him, if we trust him, and if we believe in him. Let's pray. God, once again, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Deuteronomy. God, we thank you that you have taken our curses, that you have taken our sin upon yourself, and given us your righteousness in return. God, help us to see your heart, your desire in the law, that we would long to, to honor you by, by being obedient, by shamaing your word. God, help us to be lights in a crooked and perverse generation. Help us to go out to, to tell people about your love, about who you are, about the redeeming God who became a man so that we could have life. God, we thank you again. And praise you. Amen.